the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery, standing in for Kieran this week and on today's show. After the collapse of Topshop retail group Arcadia, I'll be joined by Joe Farrelly, the Irish woman who was the marketing director of Topshop during its heyday. She'll be telling us what it was like to work with Chairman Philip Green and what she thinks has gone wrong for the brand. And later I'll be talking to Fiona Redden of the Irish Times about the state of play in the property market after a rise in mortgage approvals. But first, COVID-19 has been the final blow for Philip Green's fashion empire Arcadia. While its shops are still trading for now, administrators have begun a desperate search for buyers to protect as many jobs as possible. The group's woes predate the pandemic, however, with brands like Miss Selfridge, Wallace and even Topshop overtaken in recent times by stronger, savvier rivals, both on the high street and online. So what happened to the confident, cool Topshop that its many fans loved at the turn of the millennium? With me now is Joe Farrelly, former marketing director of Topshop. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you. Great to be here. So you were part of the team that led Topshop to great heights. But can you tell us first how you came to join it and what your opinion was of the brand at the time. Yeah. Um, yes, I remember it very vividly. Um, I was actually, um, obviously I was educated in Ireland and then like like many people um, from here, we all kind of leave and and, uh, and and go abroad for a while and maybe work elsewhere. So I actually, um, having finished business studies, whatever, in Trinity, en- ended up in Belgium working for Levi's, uh, Levi's Europe. And if you like, that was really where I kind of honed my sort of skills as a sort of a a brand kind of, you know, insider, brand kind of expert. Um, because one of the things that Levi's was really good at doing at the time, certainly, um, you know, in the late 80s and the 90s, was they really kind of trailblazed in terms of, you know, brand advertising and all their ad campaigns. And just they were very uh, fastidious about how to build a proper brand. But one of the things that they weren't so good at at Levi's was being a retailer. Um, and that's where, if you like, myself and Jane Shepherdson from um, Topshop kind of our, both our minds kind of met. I wanted to learn more about retailing and she wanted to learn more about how to build a brand. So um, so basically um, in, in 2000, uh, Jane, Jane, first of all, became brand director in 1999. And, you know, she had been already in Topshop for, you know, um, I think it was ever, ever it was her first job, in fact. So I think she was there for about 15 years as, and working really as a buyer. Um, but really she knew instinctively that what she needed to do to take Topshop out of the doldrums was to actually build a brand and to try and make it cool. Um, and I basically interviewed with her and, and I was also at the time, I just felt it was a real, real opportunity. Um, I mean, Topshop was, was actually known as being Flop Shop, um, a name. I've seen that as a headline this week. Um, but certainly it, it was, it was really naff, you know, it was a really naff place to shop and it was kind of embarrassing. Um, uh, but, but at the same time, there's this kind of great energy and, and great potential with that brand. And, and, and also as a retailer and, and really at the time brands were becoming retailers and retailers were becoming brands. Um, so basically we both saw the opportunity that, you know, really, um, Topshop was ripe to kind of make it into something um, much more covetable than it was, and and that journey started in in sort of two thousand, um, and 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 that's what we did. We worked together for um, seven years, um, you know, and that that was our that was our mission. Um, but it was it was a very exciting. It was very very much about reinventing that brand, and uh, and at the time, Jane said, you know, I I just want to make it cool. I, I want to make it cool, and and I was like, well, what do you think is cool, you know? And she was like, well, French Connection. I don't know if you remember French Connection. But at the time, it was like the FC UK, you know, French Connection UK, and and, and I remember going to her saying, "Well, I, I think we can do better than that," you know. Yes, the FC UK was a slightly risque. <laughs> yes, yes, and and at the Slogan time, it was groundbreaking, if you like. Um, but but really, we just knew that that um, we, we we started that journey, and 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 I can tell you a bit more about that. If yeah, no, just to go back in time, uh, just briefly. Um, the start of Topshop was in the 60s, in, I believe, in the basement of the Peter Robinson chain, which was owned by the Burton Group at the time. But over those decades, it had, had come to the point, as you said, um, where it was where it was treading water effectively. And um, Jane Shepherdson, brand director, she felt, uh, as you did, that there was a lot more to do and that could be done. And 
you know, uh, potential to win so many more uh, hearts and minds of, of young shoppers. So tell, tell us then, how did the vision come about? You thought you could do better than French Connection. What was the, what were the first things yeah. that you did? Well, really, what what yes, I mean, at that time, in terms of Topshop, um, you know, to their advantage, they had about three hundred you know, stores. Um, and that was that was a huge opportunity in terms of that alone, that just real estate and, and having that amount of miles, if you like, of, 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 three, of free advertising is the way I sort of saw it. And, and then it was what, what happened inside those doors was, was the problem. And, and, and that was also the opportunity. So, um, you know, Topshop had been very good at, at, at sort of selling, you know, fast fashion and kind of like cheap clothing, really. Um, and 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 that, but 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 people were actually embarrassed to shop there. So it wasn't something you were proud of, you know. It wasn't something that you'd sort of boast about. Um, and if you like, you know, we really knew we had achieved something when 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 literally people were were validating their sense of style by the fact that you know this might be from Prada, but this is from Topshop, you know. And and it was that kind of became cool not to be dressed head to toe in 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 luxury brands, but it became cool to to mix both your high street and your kind of more designer pieces. Um, and, and if you like, that was almost the essence of what we were um, trying to kind of create because it was this sort of moment, that kind of zeitgeist moment of when suddenly it felt right that, you know, because there was this whole logo mania thing going on at the time, it was like that Burberry time where people were sort of head to toe and, and the Prada, all the big kind of flagship stores were opening in terms of the designer street. But suddenly people wanted something that was much more, you know, democratic. Um, and that was really what we set out about creating was this kind of fashion democracy um, to treat people, no matter what your bank balance was, to treat everybody equally to to excite and delight everybody that walked into our store um whether you were you know just getting your first paycheck or whether you were like a schoolgirl or whether you were like a celebrity that could like afford to buy the entire store we didn't really care we wanted to treat everybody the same and, and make sure that um there was this kind of vip culture if you like and, and that was the other thing that we just made people feel really special um but in terms of setting out you know the the brand vision we, we started off by saying as I said, it was very important about, you know, a brand can be anything that you want to be, but the important thing is to decide what that is and then set about very clearly in pursuing that direction, pursuing that vision. And it became very clear to me, you know, when I kind of, I sort of came in for six months and sort of did a bit of due diligence on the brand and and sort of assessed as to whether or not there was any potential there. And, and certainly it just, it, it seemed for me at the time that, you know, very much Topshop's vision was very simple. We decided to become the fashion authority. And that was what we set out to do. Um, lots of other youth brands were, were involved in music or they were involved in different things. We decided to be all about fashion and to be the, the fashion authority. Um, and then we set about, you know, basically a, a pathway to actually achieve that goal. And that was something that was, you know, we were on a mission to do that over a course of years. Um, but it, it, it very much was about, you know, making sure it started with the product, making sure that our product was absolutely absolutely the best product that that we could offer for that price um always we, we we had this big commitment to the customer in terms of you really wanted to attract those customers who were very authoritative in their kind of fashion who actually wanted something a bit different um and and so we we created a number of new collections um to do that from you know we were the first high street brand to show on the on london fashion week for example um and and another big part of what we were also about was you know you can't sell, sell all these jeans and t-shirts if you don't give something back and giving something back to the industry was hugely important uh, for for us um, at the brand. And so we started off particularly supporting the up-and-coming fashion designer. Um, and then, you know, that was kind of where the seed was sown for a huge program around London Fashion Week, the new generation designers, um, all these programs that were, that sort of we developed hand-in-hand um, hand with, you know, um, the, the fashion industry at the time. Um, and and that's very much what we were about. But but ultimately at the core of everything that we did, it was about the customer and always trying to exceed their expectation, always treating them as being with utmost respect. Um, and, you know, there was lots of little touches that we did at the brand that that just made, that we made sure that we had that customer loyalty. And I think that's kind of what 
um, stood us apart from the rest, um, you know, in the kind of mid, mid 2000s, if you like, the mid noughties, that, that was really where, um, Top Shop had, had won over, um, the rest of the high street because we had this, this, this insider fashion loyalty, um, and people couldn't understand it. I mean, I remember the reviews from the first uh, London Fashion Week. I think it was the first anyway. And, and they were they were positive. And, and over the years after that, it became expected that uh, that Topshop would would be yeah. there, that they belonged there. It, was, it wasn't going to be a novelty one year and then they're gone. It, it's, it, you were going to be back and you were going to have something interesting to show. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, behind the scenes of that, I mean, the reason why we were invited to the table, because at the time it was sort of unheard of to do something like that. It was it was only for the the privy of of designer um, designer brands. Um, But the reason why we were invited to the table to that was because for for a number of years, if you like, you know, when we started, we started out sponsoring Graduate Fashion Week and then we created a, a program which was called New Generation. And they were the new generation of fashion designers. And, you know, that was all about providing not just money to to the next generation of designers, but also we would very much partner with them and and give them space in our store to sell their collections and also get that exposure of what it's like to be a retailer and to get firsthand experience of, you know, building your 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 business. Um because, you know, those designers, I mean, they they are very much the heartbeat of 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 the industry. Um, so, so, so we, we very felt, felt, felt very strongly with that. But then we also had our own, uh, Topshop Unique, um, which is our own designer collection. And, and that was our own, our own line. And, and it was very much about setting about to, to sort of prove the point that actually, because Topshop was really known as copying, copying other brands initially. And that was another thing that we needed to kind of really shake off. I mean, that was from, from a brand equity point of view, we needed to demonstrate that that, that wasn't necessarily the case. We had, we had an amazing design team headed up by Nick Passmore. Um, and, and yeah, so the people inside Topshop were, were, were very, very talented and very creative um, group of people. And it, so it was all going really very well. Um, you were adding customers. Um, I was certainly one of them at the time. Great. And I remember a Topshop Unique, the, we always kind of had interesting kind of silhouettes and things that maybe yes, that were slightly yes. daring, but, you know, not too not too uh, out there. And I know in the, in the noughties when sort of day dresses kind of came back in a big way, <laughs> um, I used to get mine in, in Topshop. But, yeah. But something happened in 2002 that sort of changed the course of, of the company and the brand eventually. So yes. what were your thoughts when you heard um, Philip Green was going to buy Arcadia, Topshop's parent? I mean, yeah, it was... You know, it was kind of like one of those moments, the same ways that we all know what we were doing when, you know, we got the news that Lady Diana died or, you know, these these mega moments. I, I actually just remember sort of pressing freeze frame almost in our life when we heard that Philip Green actually might be buying Top Shop. We couldn't we couldn't actually believe it. Um at the time, we just, we just, we really thought there's no way Stuart Rose would actually even sell it to him. Um, but so we were, we, we were kind of disbelief um, initially when that rumor um, happened. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a defining moment for the brand. I mean, 2002. It sounds quite early on when he, when he, when he bought the brand. But actually, the impact of that maybe wasn't felt until you know, a couple of years after that, really. Um, so initially, and it was at the very end of 2002. So we, we managed to to just kind of stave him off um, away, keep him away from, from, from Topshop for a number of years, really, um, until it became unmanageable. And then we knew we, we needed to we needed to depart um, because it wasn't going to work out otherwise. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think initially when Philip bought Arcadia, you know, he was buying it um, uh, very much as a property play, and he was actually attracted to Dorothy Perkins and Burtons, who between them had about five hundred doors, um, you know, in terms of stores, um, and that's what he was after. But it was only when he actually um, had taken on the, the the company that he was absolutely couldn't believe um, this little gem, the crown of uh, Topshop, and and the performance of of that brand. Um, and it was really, it was sort of, you know, a rate of sales or a rate of return on sales that, that he had never um, really witnessed. And he couldn't really understand how, how it was so profitable. And he became sort of obsessed with wanting to associate himself with that brand and associate himself with building that brand and that success. And, and I think like a lot of 
business people, when they actually get to this sort of extreme success in terms of monetary success, the one thing that they all crave is is to have that endorsement in terms of the reputation. And I think that's something money can't necessarily buy. And I think Philip really wanted to 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 gain that endorsement from the fashion industry and to use Topshop to as a, as a, as a vehicle for him to to, to get that endorsement um, amongst you know the the fashion editors and celebrities and whatever else. And I think that's that's very much he 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 not only became interested in the brand, but he actually tried to really become the face of the brand. And and you and I know, I mean, that is not a good strategy for any business owner, for any brand particularly. You know, it, it, it's got to be about the brand first. And and um, so, yeah, that's that was sort of the beginning of the uh, demise um, as far as we could see. So he was he was very keen on, on celebrity partnerships in particular, wasn't he? Um, yes. Tell yes. us about the conversation so, that you had with him that sort of almost accidentally led to the Kate Moss yes, collaboration. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I should say, so in terms of the fact that, you know, the reason why Topshop was so successful was no doubt because we had a strategy and that strategy was was very clearly set out and it was a it was a plan that we were following and 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 part of that there were some core principles that we believed in and one of the core principles was that we would not pay celebrity so we were about this fashion democracy we were about and that 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 was working very well for our brand so it was just a point of principle there was many other brands that were paying celebrities huge amounts of money to appear in their ad campaigns we just felt we weren't about that we'd much rather spend that money in actually giving it back into the industry supporting the up-and-coming designers who have got no money at all some of them are sleeping on the floor of their studio just to get their collections out you know we felt we had a responsibility as being a brand like Topshop on the high street to do that for the industry so so actually the whole celebrity thing I mean that was just a I mean it's just not a new idea I mean it's boring I mean it's just like it's like yeah I mean we were at the advantage that celebrities were shopping with us and we would still never even tell anyone they were shopping with us and and some of the best kudos for our brand was I mean one of the times I was reading Vogue and I read Gwyneth Paltrow you know was boasting about the fact that she shopped in Topshop you know so we we very much kind of were the unexpected sort of high street brand that we would we would treat you with privacy and respect um, and we wouldn't talk about, you know, what our customers were doing. Um, but so basically in some ways, so so Philip coming barging in with this sort of, okay, come on, let's do a celebrity collaboration. We were like, yeah, okay, but, you know, that can't be at the cost of not doing these other things um, in terms of supporting the designers. or ta- You can't take money away from that to do this. Um, so so for, for many years, I, I just try to kind of keep, keep, you know, keep them away from from meddling in the brand, and so did Jane. And um, both of us would have hours and hours of discussions with him, um, many quite animated, as you can imagine. But 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 basically, you know, no matter who he would suggest, um, I would just go, no, no, not definitely not right for the brand. So we were very much the brand guardians, you know. So nothing, and he kind of respected that to some level. But it, he found it hugely frustrating that he just couldn't. He just wanted to get. He was desperate to get his hands on, desperate to get sort of right up front and central to that brand. So we were like, no, 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 not going to work. No, okay. And I said, no, no, it's not cool. Not you know, it's not cool. And then he goes, well, who is cool? And I said, well, I'll tell you who's cool. And I said, Kate Moss. She's pretty cool. Thinking in my head, well, there's no way, there's no way he's going to come out with Kate Moss. I mean, there's no way she's going to, you know, be paid off by Philip. I really thought, I really naively thought that that was, you know, going to be the case. And anyway, he came back in, you know, a few months later and just said, Joe, I've got something for you. I've got Kate Moss. And I was like, oh, no. To myself, I was like, oh, no. So um, not because, by the way, Kate Moss is fantastic and, and and she, you know, was a big supporter of the brand. It wasn't that. And she was a great customer of the brand. And we even had something called the Kate Moss vest because she came in and bought so many of them. They were absolutely the kind of vest she liked to wear. But it was just, we just knew it was the beginning of the end, nothing to do with Kate Moss, but because that was Philip's way in. And and if you look at any of the photographs or any of the, from that moment on, I mean, it's the beauty and the beast. So there's like photos, there's, there's Kate and Philip, you know, and and it's just not that, I mean, it's just not that relevant for, you know, a young 20-something customer or a young kind of cool Hoxton girl, you know, who wants to, you know, find something kind of alternative in her wardrobe. It, it just took, it it basically from that moment, it just made, made our jobs very difficult because, um if you're if you're spending all this money on on on, on celebrities, it, it becomes very hard to negotiate. Um, 
deals in 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 other areas. So um, yeah, I remember those photographs of, of Philip Green with Kate Moss on his side, or at least I think I remember them. But they've been in the press so much lately as well. Maybe what I'm remembering is the fact that they were shown again yesterday and uh, the day before that. Um, but they did look like they came from a different brand and another age. <laughs> I think we could say yes. that they maybe harked back to an earlier um, an earlier century. <laughs> um, but but customers who read certain newspapers might have been aware of Philip Green's uh, lavish lifestyle. But but when he's next to Kate Moss, it was in every magazine. So everybody starts to become aware um, of, of Philip Green and maybe starts to think, I don't know. Is is this? Does this fit with my my yes. perception of yes. of Topshop? Yes, exactly that, Laura. Exactly, and I just, it, you know, what the issue wasn't with Kate. wasn't with Kate at all. It, it was just. It, it was also the fact that that became the story. That became the brand. So so, so that's always very dangerous. I mean, I, I, you know. There's so many other aspects to to building a brand and and to managing a brand and 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 you know and and that was really what happened that the focus I mean that was just one small collection tiny collection tiny part of you know um, the whole of Topshop so the the eye was off the ball all of the energy and focus and everything um, was 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 focused into the, the Kate Moss collaboration and and the rest of the brand um, have suffered um, from lack of investment in, in a number a number of things. Um, but um, you know, so 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 it was. It, we we saw. I mean, Jane very quickly, um, and it's been reported. You know, we were always thinking we we needed to to move on because we, he just our principles and his principles were very different. We were just we're not ever going to be aligned, and um, and and it just yeah we we had done the job that we set out to do, and I, it was it was time um, to to move on. So um, so that's that that's that that's what happened, and I and I, I think. That's why you know the news this week. I mean, I, I didn't even blink an eye to be honest. It, 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 it was so unsurprising, um, for me because the the damage was 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 laid out um, back then, and unfortunately, and I feel I, I do want to say on this, you know, talking about the brand, but I, I feel huge sympathy for all of those employees um, who were faced with that news um, this week uh, because you know the the store staff are absolutely the heartbeat. Um, of a brand like Topshop and any of those retail brands, and I think, you know, that that's really the the, the crying shame. It's the responsibility that that you owe to those people, and 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 in terms of, I've no doubt, you know, they they are so committed uh, to to a brand like that. So, I mean, was the writing on the wall in a sense in two thousand and five? I think it was when he uh, uh, Philip Green paid himself. Uh, I think it was one point two billion dividend, which was then a record, I understand, in, in British corporate history. And it was about four times uh, Topshop's annual profit. So it wasn't, you couldn't say it was justified in any way, really. But it was a lot more than four times the annual profit. Um, I'll tell you that. Um, but but yes, yeah, so I was I was there. I was I was in the room. I, I, um, I witnessed um, the entire charade. And uh, yeah, so so way back then, we, we had a um, we had a, basically a message to say that uh, Philip had some announcement to make and could we make our way to the cafeteria um, at 10 o'clock in the morning in Calgrave House, uh, where's the Arcadia headquarters, um, which is, if you could imagine, is this sort of VHS-style uh, cafeteria. And uh, anyway, it was all kind of decked out in, in white tablecloths and whatever else and trays of champagne. And we were like, what's this all about? So basically it was an announcement um Philip was congratulating himself for paying himself 1.2 billion um, uh, pounds of, of dividend um, and particularly congratulating his wife um, who basically everything was in her name, uh, Tina. So um, for tax yeah. reasons. So we all had to stand around and, and, and applause and just say congratulations, well done. But it was the biggest um, dividend payout in the history, um, I don't know, in the history of business any brand any any retail certainly any retailer i think again you know that it was the the public nature of that i mean however about you know what you think about doing that but the public nature of that of of again it doesn't help um doesn't help when you're trying to actually manage a brand like that because you know when i walk back to my desk from that announcement literally the phone was hopping and uh so you could imagine any other sort of negotiation that you might be making in terms of you know be it 
uh, sponsoring a young designer and saying, I'm really sorry, we can't, we don't have, we don't have any more budget than, than that. You know, it becomes very difficult. Um, and our budgets were actually relatively small, eh? but, but you wouldn't think it, um, by picking up the newspaper and, and reading about his lifestyle, obviously. Um, and again, prior to, to him being involved in the business, we were never, we were never like that. So the situation was unsustainable, as you were saying earlier. And, and Jane, Jane left in 2006 and you, you, you followed shortly yeah. after. Yeah. Um, tell us about what you did next. So what we did next, um, I think at that point, I mean, all of the Topshop team, actually, um, we, all, we all left. Um, Jane first and then me and then pretty much um, everybody else. Because we just, you know what, we were very much, I mean, one of the reasons why it was successful as well was because of the team, just in terms of working together, in terms of actually respecting each other, having a vision and, and all aspects of the brand working towards it, be it whether you're in retail, whether you're in marketing, you know, in terms of whatever you're a buyer, whether you're a designer. And if everybody's working towards the same direction, you know, you can get unbelievable results. And I think that was really what we had as a team. So we we all left and said, okay, why don't we try and do Topshop somewhere else? But um, so basically we had the opportunity to, to take on Whistles, um, which was um, part of the Mosaic group at the time and uh, and basically set about reinventing that brand in terms of actually making it more relevant. Again, it had lost its kind of way in terms of the cons- customer base um, and, and it was a lot smaller than Topshop, so it was a lot more attractive to us in terms of the supply chain, um, in terms of really making sure you can manage that very closely and being responsible for every aspect of that. So, so yeah, so we took that on, but... Um, you know, that was that 2008 recession hit, which was uh, challenging times. But, you know, again, just great, great experience to um, to work on brands like that. Um, you know, so and, and, and again, it's about having working with people who have a similar mi- mindset, um, like minded mindset. It's so important in business. It's so important in building any brand. Um, it's very difficult when um, the person that you you work for, the person, the brand owner just just doesn't get it. I mean, I, I will. I will tell one little story that maybe sums up the um, unique difference from where we were coming from. Our our place, which was all about the customer, putting the customers first in terms of never underestimating the customer, never underestimating that person in terms of how design savvy they are or how what they have to say about a product. Um, and if they don't like it, change it, make it better. Um, however, Philip had a very different philosophy. Um, so when we, I never forget my very first encounter. And again, we had held off that meeting. We let him focus on all the other brands before he got around to us. But we had a meeting with Philip and he uh, basically, you know, retail speak is very much about, you know, what are your best sellers? What's your best sellers? What are your worst sellers? You know, it's kind of an opening gambit. But um, anyway, he uh, he was desperate to tell us about his best sellers in BHS. So uh, anyway, he was very proudly retold the story about how his best seller was... Uh, was basically a four pack of uh, Belgian beer, and uh, basically because he 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 loved getting kind of his Christmas stock in in the summer, so he'd start Christmas in September. So one of his things that he had was this uh, pack of four uh, bottles of Belgian beer, and he said to me, um, "I'm not going to take off his accent, but you can imagine." Anyway, he said to me, uh, he said, "Yeah, because I've got this, you know, um, four bottles of beer here," and he said, "Well, what I do is I put a different label on each one, and then I fill it up with the same beer, and they love it." They absolutely love it. And I just remember going, oh, my God. Like, I mean, I was just like, you know, you, you, you sometimes are suspicious of these things and you kind of imagine, okay, is that, you know, the kind of retailer he might be. But, but not only those retailers can't be, it was what, he was proud of it. And, uh, and we were just absolutely, you know, that, that really kind of set the, set the agenda, set the tone of, of how things would be. And when you were at Whistles and then later on still... Um, and you, you saw how Topshop was faring and, and indeed how the other parts of Arcadia were faring. What did you think then? So, you know, I, th- I think the thing is when, when you're building a brand and you, you have a kind of a, a, a brand life cycle, a product life cycle, you know, and, and, and what normally happens is it takes, you know, you might start kind of in the low end of the curve and then, it, you know, it spends a lot of years trying to kind of get it to perform. Um, and then when you, when you do that, you know, you can ride high for a good few years. You can, you can basically, you know, stay going and, st- and, and actually be quite profitable and, and, and sort of kind of plateau a little bit um, for a few years. Um, but then very quickly, if you don't continue to invest or continue to innovate or continue to pioneer and, and bring in newness or whatever, um, then you're going to just suddenly nosedive. So I think they had a full sense of security. So I think around when I 
left, certainly for a couple of years, it was still good. There was expansion plans. I mean, again, the Kate Moss collaboration, you know, Philip used that as this kind of international um, strategy to open doors. But again, it's very dangerous if you're only known to be associated with celebrity. It, it's, you know, there's a lot riding on that. So it was the other elements that that, that were very much neglected. Um, I mean, Philip, you know, it's been widely kind of documented, you know, is personally is that he he's he's a bit of a technophobe um but really it was just about the investment there so so you know one of the things that when i was involved we were all about um pioneering digital um marketing um ideas we were one of the first people to have a podcast for example and certainly the website when we took it on it was it was non-existent and it was you know by far and away the biggest store um by the time I had left, but it really, it, it really needed much more, much more development in terms of systems. I mean, and retail systems are so important. Um, and, and yeah, that investment wasn't there. Um, and I just think the, 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 the brand, you know, the brand needs constant nurturing and they needed to innovate um, constantly in terms of the competition um, is huge. And there's so many trends and stuff that are happening. I mean, I think the one thing about the, the loyal customer base that Topshop had developed, you know, that customer, has has moved on, has grown up, and there's a lot of new customers coming through. And the great thing about I think retail at the moment is that, that the consumers consumers finally are are actually they want more. I mean they 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 want sustainable brands. They want to know where things are made. They they want to be proud of the products they buy. And again, I mean, I, I, but that could have been a huge opportunity um, for someone like Topshop to have been moved into that space early on and 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 to set the example for the industry. You know. Um, so I just think there's lots of things that could have been done, but, but I've no doubt, you know, re- retail is, uh, you know, it, it, it is under threat everywhere. And I think, um, but, but I, I certainly, um, I certainly think a lot of, you know, what the, the news of last week is, is not something that's happened in the last six months. It's, it's been happening in the last 10 years and the lack of investment really goes to show. Yeah. I'd like to ask you a bit more about online in, in a moment, but just, uh, I suppose, the actual fashion, the actual stock, I mean, I always kind of, I was starting to get the sense, you know, in the last five, six years that it was kind of going off the boil a little bit, but then I wasn't sure, was this just me uh, aging out of the brand in a way that would have happened anyway? It seemed that fashion as a whole, high street fashion, changed and maybe became less feverish and had more, you know, athleisure, loungewear. And when Topshop was doing that, it wasn't doing that in a kind of a convincing way or not as convincing as as its as its competition yeah i think that's quite right Laura. i think um i, I yeah I, I think certainly you know in terms of when we were when 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 we were managing the brand you know it was the high street was kind of at, at its pinnacle in a, in a, in a different way and certainly in the last few years that has that has changed um but what i noticed is that um you know again one of the things that philip did in the first um pretty much in the first few hours of taking office was he um, sent out a memo um, everywhere for for suppliers to reduce their margin um, by a certain percentage uh, with, with immediate effect. So just by him being in charge just meant that he wanted to squeeze the suppliers. And, you know, and he wanted to send a message to them that, uh, you know, we're not going to be messed with type of thing. Um, really, that has a knock-on effect. And that means that you're squeezing... The margin, and obviously you've got to negotiate a good deal for yourself, but but squeezing the margin that that, that has impact either in terms of the quality, um, you know, which is something that I certainly kind of saw um, over the last few years, but but also in terms of just um, subcontracting and suppliers becoming under increased pressure, and and then as you say, there was huge you know, trends are changing all the time, and in terms of just you know leisure wear, particularly at the moment, but I would. I would again see that that's where a brand can always be relevant. And I think, you know, again, I, I spoke about when, when we started with Topshop in the beginning, you know, it was still the same name. And that was one of the things that Jane said. She goes, oh, it's such a terrible name. Can we change the name? I mean, Topshop, how bad is that? Honestly. And I was like, well, you know what? It doesn't really matter. In the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you're called. It's actually what you stand, what, what you stand for. That's what matters. And I think just like that, you know, so yeah, maybe, you know, a lot of these high street stores are redundant or maybe their original formats were redundant. Maybe the customers want something different. But that doesn't mean that you can't give the customer something different. That doesn't mean that you can't, you know, 
innovate and come up with amazing leisure wear line or, or, you know, whatever it is in terms of, because at the time, as you remember, Laura, you were saying you were shopping in Topshop Unique, but also we had another thing called Boutique, which was like, we had lots of secondhand vintage stores within our stores. We had, you know, something for everybody. And it was all about just bringing that customer in and giving them what they want. And, you know, even sustainable fashion, I know this like token organic t-shirts. I mean, that doesn't really cut it for me. There's, there's so much more you could do in that, you know, and, and by bringing your customer with you um, and vice versa, you know, I just think you can create, and I, I know from from working there, we were able to create a lot of different lines, a lot of different collections that you'd never imagine that a brand like Topshop at that time could have done. Um, so I don't know whether I'm answering your question, but I think that's, you know, um, I think it is possible uh, today. Challenging, but possible. So... We, we're here now in, in uh, December 2020 and the administrators, as I said at the start, are, are looking for a buyer for parts of Arcadia, maybe not the whole group, but, but Topshop is still seen as the uh, strongest uh, part of it and the jewel within Arcadia. But one of the suitors or potential buyers is Boohoo, which is an online only company. And they, if the, the companies that they've bought, the retailers that they've snapped up, um, in the last couple of years, they've only wanted their online operations. And as well as being sort of um, absolutely tragic for, for all this, the staff, employees involved, do you think that's, that's, that would be underselling, you know, the, the power of Topshop in a way? Does, do you think Topshop should still be there on the high street in some way? Well, it's a good question and it's a hard one to answer. I think, I, I think, you know, I think it's, pretty well documented and and I think the feeling is that certainly obviously in terms of the move towards e-commerce is is something which is just going to increase increase I think there's a huge growth um and obviously with covid as we know that's totally um accelerated uh that in, in terms of e-commerce sales so I think any brand um I mean that, that's a must to start with I think I think any brand um needs to kind of absolutely have that as a number one um, priority and I think the bricks and mortar is is secondary and um and I would say that you know we inherited I mean even when we're working in Topshop and the same with 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 Whistles we went on to that you know we inherited a lot of a lot of stores that that maybe went right um they just went right for us maybe those deals you know a lot, lot of legacy deals that that either the store didn't reflect your customer base or didn't you know it may so, so I think I think one of the things is that it's really important, whatever your brand strategy is, that your your distribution strategy matches that consumer target that you're focusing on. And, you know, so I think if it was Boohoo who took it over or whoever it is, you know, they would need to look at at, at it working for their um, customer. And so that might mean, um, that might mean tweaking it, that might mean um, that certain doors may not be right, and that they would need to get out of those contracts. And it might be, it might well mean that some of them are right. Um, and also, I think I've also seen, you know, I mean, I personally recently been working with a white company. Um, that's going to be, and that, that they started out online, you know, um, as a brand, and and they have gone into uh, bricks and mortar, um, you know, flagship stores. They just have a few key. They've opened a beautiful one actually in in Dublin on Grafton Street, and it was, you know, so they're using that as a way. Um, almost as a showcase for their brand and, 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 and so that people are then maybe driven to, to, to shop online still. But, but it's also nice to go and have a look and feel and experience. So I think there's all kinds of things um, happening out there. I think, I think realistically, to answer your question, I think, I think definitely it's the online. It's, it's actually the data and it's the, um, the, the customer base that, that is very valuable um, for, for Topshop or for any buyer. Um, and then in terms of those doors, I, I think... Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of them, um, sadly, very sadly for, for those em- employees, but I think a lot of them are are probably not right. And, and I, I think the really the really tough pill to swallow for anyone that takes us on, and this is this is to do with how the state of the business that's been handed over, is that the doors that are there, if they want to keep them, they're probably such a bad um, state that they they have not been um, refurbished, they have not been you know um, looked after in the way that that perhaps you know, they, they, they should be in terms of, so, so they're probably not up to standard and, and they're going to end up costing even a lot more money uh, other than the rents. Um, so that's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a tough negotiation. How do you think uh, Philip Green is feeling this week? Well, I really can't 
comment on how he is feeling. Um, the thing with um, Philip was, um, you know, the thing I never really understood. I, I when when he bought Topshop or when he bought Arcadia, excuse me, um, it was a house of brands, and those brands were, um, you know, Dorothy Perkins, Burton's, uh, Miss Eldridge, Evans, um, Wallace. I think it was Warehouse, might have been part of it. I can't remember, but Topshop, Topman, and you know, I'm sure it doesn't take a genius to work out. I think some of the other brands really needed um, immediate attention. Um, and that I, I would have thought he would have been really happy with the fact that he has Topshop, Top brand, Topshop and, you know, Topshop certainly um, was on this trajectory of, of, of success and the profit was just, you know, was doubling year on year and that surely he should have been delighted and just left that alone and, and, and focus his efforts on, on trying to revitalize the other brands. But in some ways he was, he was actually seemed to be quite jealous. He was actually kind of jealous of his own brand doing well because he wasn't actually part of it and he he couldn't be part of it. So he would get quite wounded if we were doing something without him or if he didn't know about something or he wasn't front and central of something. So that's sort of very much his kind of personality that um, he... So I would imagine in, in, in this situation that um, he is is probably not, his thoughts are probably not where they should be, which is with um, those employees um, who have been let down, that he is probably licking his wounds from his yacht somewhere. Um, but I would hope that that maybe with the demise of BHS, that he's kind of learned from that and that he would, um, you know, do everything that his family um, can do in terms of financially to make sure that, that those uh, employees do get their pensions and that they... Um, you know, are looked after in 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 this situation. It is a sad story uh, as well as a, a fascinating one, and I would just like to to join you, echo echo your sentiments earlier in um, wishing the best of luck to Arcadia's employees in what is a very difficult time for them at uh, an important time of year. Um, I'm sure many of the customers will, will look back on fondly on on Topshop. You know, what, whatever happens next, wherever the future lies uh, yeah. for the brand, and was obviously a very important part of your life. I mean, I think that's, I think personally, you know, it's, it's when you work very closely in a brand, it, it, you actually become very attached. It, it's not like a business. It's like, it's something that it's a passion. I mean, working, I mean, those years there were, were, were just most enjoyable of, of my career and, and we had great fun and it was, it was all about that. And, and, you know, success breeds success and creativity breeds cre- creativity and creating a fun environment. I mean, if you, if you were to speak to any employee that worked there at the time, they, they loved it. We, I mean, everybody wanted to work for Topshop. That every girl in fashion wanted to work at Topshop, and and that was really infectious. And I think that's what's sad. You know, what's really sad is that that is lost. And I hope with all of this that that's not forgotten because uh, Topshop at the time did a lot of good things. Uh, did a lot of good things for the industry. A lot of good things for people starting out in fashion. And 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 I hope you know. There's no reason. I hope it can enjoy uh, its heyday again. Um, Brands are always reinventing themselves, and so I would, I would wish them every success. And whoever is a lucky buyer, well, I just and finally I just want to say how excited I was the first time I was in the flagship store on Oxford Street in the year two thousand on a on a break in London, and it was just incredible how, how the scale of the place. And as you say, there was so many designer lines, um, so much so much up and coming talent on display. It, it was different than anything I'd ever seen, really, even though. You know, Topshop had a prime spot in my uh, local uh, Blanchard Sound Centre by that point. But it was it was really, yeah, just around that time where I, I sort of, yeah, that, that word cool um, is probably uh, overused, but it's really appropriate, I think, in this, in this. Not that I'm saying I'm cool for shopping in Topshop, but... Um, no, but I just, you, you know, I'll just leave you with a quote. I mean, I think that the, the, the time when we felt, have we done our job, was... was um, you know, when we started, obviously it was it was being cited as being this flop shop, and uh, but when we, there was a there was an article written, and it was the Telegraph wrote it, and and the headline was Top Shop once so famously naff, now so famously cool, and we were like, yes, that's great, <laughs> you know, good job there. Well, we we'll, we will leave it there, but thank you very much for your insight today, for speaking to the podcast, uh, Joe Farrelly, former marketing director of Top Shop. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, thank you, Laura. Coming up, property in the pandemic. At Davy, we know your well-being should be financial as well as personal. And now when it's a little more challenging, if you're in a position where you have a pension, it's never been more important to get active. 
So talk to one of our trusted advisors now and we can help you find a solution for your pension needs. A solution that could help you feel better about your financial future. Let's start the conversation. Call us today or search Davy. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janey Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. October was the biggest month for mortgage approvals in at least nine years, with the value of loans surging compared to the same month in 2019. What's behind this growth and could it lead to inflation in house prices? Here to discuss how the property market is faring in the pandemic is Irish Times personal finance expert Fiona Redden. Fiona, the banking industry body BPFI put out these eye-catching figures this week, but what did they tell us? That's right, Laura. So mortgage approvals are at a record high at the moment. They're up 20% on the year. And um, I think it's eye-catching because, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And way back in March, the view was that house prices were not not heading for a crash, but were heading for a slump. You know, economists were predicting drops in values of as much as 10, 13 percent. But now coming into December, I think prices are down across the country only by about one percent on the year and a little bit higher in Dublin at about one point eight percent. So the the crisis hasn't really hit the housing market yet, if ever. So will it hit it at all now if it's holding up this year? You'd have to think not. And I guess there's a couple of reasons possibly why it has performed so strongly. I mean, first thing is that the crisis, as we know, it's hit certain sectors of society much harsher than others, those in tourism and hospitality. And if you speak to estate agents, they'll typically say they're our renters. You know, they rent property from us. They don't buy property. So the people who would typically be buyers of property haven't really seen their own financial circumstances hit very much yet. So they're still able to, you know, to make a purchase. The government has also been there trying to incentivize home purchase through help to buy. It extended that in the budget. And I guess you could say that that's possibly one of the big reasons behind mortgage approvals in November is because um, that came through in October. And it means that you can now you can effectively buy a house for up to 300,000 without pushing down a penny as a deposit yourself. Because the uh, the figures from the BPFI, the, the, it did show quite a lot of activity from, from first-time buyers in particular. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that's the help to buy, isn't it? Because that gives you 10% of the purchase price up to 30,000. So that's that's a big decision. I mean, if you've been sitting at home in a flat share maybe or in a housing share with your people you know, that you live with, that you're working from home, I'd say a lot of people have started to think maybe, you know, I want a bit of my own space now. How long will I be working from home for? It's not really the ideal situation. My rent is probably very expensive and now I can buy a house without any savings. So it, it does look attractive when you look at it from that, doesn't it? So it was a kind of a, a stunning bounce back, but, but you know, compared to the stalling we saw er, earlier in the year, or if you combine those two, I believe we're still down compared to 2019 for the whole first period of the yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, house prices are down, yeah, about 1% across the country. But um, I mean, that that's, you know, it's, it's not down by very much, is it? Not compared to what was expected. When you consider that almost 40% unemployed at one point during the year. And the volume of loans, of course, is, is down as well. I mean, there is still, you know, major, major affordability hurdles for, for many would-be buyers out there. Well, that's the thing, Laura. I mean, you can see mortgage approvals. So people are going to the bank, they're getting the approval. But will they be able to actually transact and purchase a home? I think that's a whole other issue for people. Because as we know, new construction has fallen this year, you know, with the impact of the pandemic. And um, the supply of secondhand homes is down substantially, especially in bigger cities like Dublin. So that's going to make it very difficult for people, mortgage approval or not, you know, to be able to actually afford to buy the house that they want. Because what you're finding already is that you have more people chasing fewer homes. And of course, that's keeping the prices, you know, if, if, if not growing, then it's keeping the prices up. Supply of new properties, you know, it has, absolutely hasn't been helped by the pandemic. But is it likely to stay weak next year, do you think? 
Yeah, Laura, I think that'll depend on confidence to a certain extent because you have people who maybe postpone the decision to buy a new house to trade up themselves because they're hoping to get the best price for their own house. And then if they do want to trade up, they're going to have to get a mortgage. Now, I know mortgage approvals are up, but it's still tricky and particularly depending on which sector you're in as to whether or not you're going to get that approval. And not only will you get approval, some people need exemptions to make it worth their while in trading up. So I think if if the mortgage market loosens up, then that'll feed into supply as well and maybe loosen some of the supply there and people trading up, which will create home more homes for first time buyers in a sense. Yes, I mean, first-time buyers are, are often the most uh, frustrated segment of the market, or maybe we should call them would-be uh, first-time buyers, uh, potential first-time buyers. And one of the things they're frustrated by um, is the uh, central bank's lending rules. But there's no sign of these loosening up, is there? No, and I mean, they came out, wasn't it, last week and said, no, they're happy with the, with the way they are. Effectively, they mean you can only borrow 3.5 times your income and um, you can only borrow 10, 90% of the purchase price unless you can qualify for an exemption. And typically, I mean, I always think that these rules are a bit unfair towards lower income buyers because, you know, 40,000, what's three and a half times that? If you're in a large city, it, it's it's very difficult to purchase a home. Whereas if, if just because you have a larger salary, the bank thinks you're, or the central bank rather, thinks you're a more secure borrower and will allow you to borrow more and you're more inclined to get more of an exemption. But they say um, they're not going to change and it doesn't look likely that that's going to change. But of course, people have exemptions. So, you know, the banks can allow you to borrow more than 3.5 times your income up to about five times. So if, if, if you think you need that, you should really try and talk to your bank about it because they stopped giving these exemptions earlier in the year. But now the things are, are looking somewhat brighter. Um, some of the banks are back offering these exemptions and they they go on a rolling basis. So you have them up until the end of the year, say for the banks to use their allocation for 2020. So it's actually a very good time now to get in and ask for an exemption because once we go into January, they'll, you know, they'll be back to their 2021 allocations. So they have a little bit of extra capacity there at the moment. So you wrote recently in the Irish Times that uh, what you know what's happening to the property market with to, to prices uh, is is something of a paradox because because of you know the spike of of in in unemployment but um, and then you explain that obviously there are as you say people who are secure in their jobs and haven't been in, in part of the exposed uh, sectors but we don't know what's going to happen do we in the next two to three years there is kind of going to be a kind of a long tail of of, of pain that might spread out from the most exposed sectors to the pandemic to, to to elsewhere. So is that is that what you mean by saying, well, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen um, to confidence? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to avoid, Laura, isn't it? I mean, the coffee shop I go to yesterday just said that was their last day because they're just not sure what's going to happen in the new year. Will they be? Will they have to close down again, or just offer takeaway coffee? There's so much uncertainty out there for people, and as I said, it, it that that's affecting a certain sector of the market. But as you said, will that ripple through and affect more people? And if it does, and even if it just shakes confidence without even affecting them, then you could see things slow down. But I guess the problem, and it's the chronic problem in the Irish property market, is lack of supply. So no matter what happens in one respect, um, if if your supply demand if that's imbalanced it's always going to keep property prices um somewhat insulated from what's going on in the broader economy yeah well i mean fingers crossed the uh, construction market will be able to make up for lost time a little bit at some point but um for people who have the option you know who who maybe have a deposit saved or can can somehow uh you know avail avail of of what's on offer is it possible to say one way or the other if now is a good time to buy your first house? I think, Laura, when you're buying a home, it's it's hard to pinpoint a good time because what's a good time for you is probably your own personal finances as opposed to the broader market. And if it's your home, it's not necessarily an investment. So whether the price is up or down in six months time, if it's your home, I always say I think people should just go for it, you know, within reason, I suppose, within guidelines of your own affordability. But um. If you're making an investment decision, that's that's very different. Okay, well, on that uh, upbeat note, thank you very much, uh, Fiona Redden. Thank you, Laura. And that's it for this week's Inside Business. My thanks again to Joe Farrelly and Fiona Redden. 
Today's podcast was produced by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. We'll be back next Wednesday. Thanks for listening.